Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Welcome back from summer break. That's what I meant to say. Welcome back from summer break. What do I mean by that this morning? How many of you remember leaving school in May or June and and, uh, being off for three months and not going back? And I've got a little bit of a ring. I'm not sure if it's my monitors up here. Not going back until September. Remember that summer break? Some of you remember that because you're still in school and you're looking forward to that summer break this summer. And how many of you are like me when summer break came? Uh, when summer break came, you did, not, uh, you did not review your math or your history. You didn't pick up your science book. You left all the books either at school or in the trash. You're like me. How many of you, the, the, the studious ones, you actually went back and reviewed your schoolwork over the summer? A few of you don't want to admit it, do you? And that's where we find ourselves in our verse-by-verse study in the book of Acts. We have taken a three-month break, just like summer break when school ended and you came back. And often uh, with, uh, with, with curriculum, whatever you finished, you've got to review that the, the, the new curriculum, the new grade, it starts with the review of some of the last concepts from the year before. Why? Because we forget stuff over three months. Remember summer break, going back to school, trying to remember what is, how does that work? And algebra and multiplication, division, whatever grade you're in, remembering the rules, the eight parts of speech. Is it eight? I don't even know if it's eight. However many parts of speech there are. And uh, all those things. But uh, we find ourselves, after a three-month hiatus, back in our verse-by-verse study in the book of Acts. And uh, uh, we, were, we, we did some messages uh, at Christmas time. I think the last time we were in Acts was December 6th. We did some Christmas messages, and then uh, we did six weeks to kick off this new year on Sunday mornings on our church's renewed purpose. And we talked about sharing the gospel growing in the gospel, connecting through the gospel, and living the gospel. Five weeks on our why, our purpose as a church. Last week, we spent one week on our how. What's the process that we're going to accomplish that purpose? And so now we're back to Acts after, I guess, more of a winter break. After our three-month break from Acts, we're back here in this book. And I do want uh, to take just a couple of moments to give us a little context, understanding where we're at, those that might be guests, what are we reading in the book of Acts. It's so vital whenever you approach a book, when you start reading a book of the Bible, to understand who's writing, what are they writing about, who are they writing to, because if we don't understand that context, we will not understand what God intends for us to get from that book. You've heard me say things like this before. You read an email from a colleague very differently than you read a history book, very differently than you read a dictionary, very differently than you read a love letter from someone that loves you. You read all of those things very differently. Well, if I pick up a love letter and it's not maybe, I don't know who it's written to it, I don't know who it's written from, and I read it like it's a dictionary, I just read it to find out the definitions of words, and my wife, let's say, wrote it to me, it's not going to do anything for our relationship if I'm reading her love letter like I would read a dictionary. And if I read a dictionary like a love letter, I don't know how that would work. That'd be a really weird relationship. But, but, you know, if you're reading a history, well, the Bible has all different genres of, of styles of writing. There are historical books. There are biographical books. It gives us autobiographies or narratives of characters' lives. Uh, there, there's prophecy, there's poetry. Uh, there are all these different types of books. We need to understand what we're reading. Because again, reading a history book or reading an email from a colleague, two very different things. There are letters in the Bible. Much of the New Testament is written as a letter. Well, if we read that letter as if it were a history book, it's going to be different. We're not going to quite understand the sense and the, and the, 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 the author intended under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost when he wrote it. So I want to give us just a quick, we've been in Acts, this is our 53rd message in Acts, so I'm not going to recap and review all 52 Sunday mornings that we've been in the book of Acts. But just a reminder, the book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke was a medical doctor, uh, and a great reminder for all of us that no matter what vocation we're in, no matter what gifts or talents God's given us, we should use those for the furtherance of the gospel. This medical doctor, who was not one of the 12 disciples, 
He was a medical doctor, a follower of Christ. God used him to write Acts. Acts is the sequel to Luke. Luke, when you're reading the Bible, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. In the Bible, John is in between those two books. When you're reading Luke, you can pull John out and just keep reading straight through. Same author, and he picks up the story where he left it off at the end of Luke into Acts. And so we have Dr. Luke writing the book of Acts. What is the, if I had to summarize the book of Acts, Acts is basically the history of the early church. We call it the Acts of the Apostles. Really, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. But it's, and it covers, again, understanding this is important. You read a letter that was written probably by Paul in, in a few hours or maybe a couple of days. Acts, when we read it from start to finish, we might think, oh, this all happened like in a month or two. Acts covers about three decades of time. It's about the first 30 years following the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and his ascension back into heaven. So what we have when we read Acts are the first 30 years of God using the disciples and leading the disciples following his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension back into heaven. The main character, and there are a lot of different characters, but the first half of Acts, what you'll find is the main character, basically Peter. You'll see Peter preaching Pentecost, Peter healing people, Peter going in prison, Peter being delivered from prison. And then a little bit before the halfway mark, uh, a man comes onto the scene and he becomes really the main character, the main, the main figure in, in the, in the, in the uh, and I don't like to use the word character because that makes it seem like it's, it's, it's fiction. The main person, the main uh, is Paul because it's, this is all very true things that happen. Uh, the apostle Paul when he came onto the scene in Acts, he was persecutor Saul. He went from persecuting the church to preaching Christ. And God can change anybody. God can change a life and a direction and all of that. And so we see Paul, and that's where we're at. We're in Acts 17, if you'd like to turn with me there. Acts in chapter number 17, which is the chapter where we left off. And I, I hate to bring attention to it. I know we've pulled out some insulation with the electrical work, and so some of our acoustics are messed up right now, but I'm getting a lot of, it's real tinny up here, a lot of kind of uh, that tinny sound. So I apologize. I don't normally bring attention, and they're doing the best they can. We've got electricians in here changing, as you can see, changing stuff, and, and we're moving through it. Um, welcome those that are watching online, by the way. We're glad that you're here as well. Acts in chapter number 17. Acts is a book of action. Sometimes we call it maybe a movie. That's an action movie. There's going to be stuff happening every, every few seconds, every minute or two. There's some action. That's what Acts is. It's a book of action. A lot of stuff is happening. The gospel is being preached. Disciples are being persecuted. Miracles are being done. Churches are being planted. Multitudes are being saved. The gospel's going to the Jews and to the Gentiles as well. And where we find ourselves in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, he had three distinct missionary journeys that he went on preaching the gospel to different places and planting churches. Acts 17 finds us right about in the middle of his second missionary journey. I think we have a map of it. And right there in the middle of his second missionary journey, uh, you'll see at the top of this map, Philippi. Philippi was at the end of Acts 16. He's traveling from Philippi. You can see it in verse 1, Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. So you can see Philippi, end of Acts 16, they passed through those two cities into Thessalonica. We have already preached, I've already preached three messages in Acts 17 back in November and December. Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica, then Berea, they get run out of town after about three weeks to a month in Thessalonica. They're not real excited about the gospel being preached there. Some, some people are, but some people aren't. And so they get run into, they go into Berea, and then they preach there, and then Paul ends up, takes a, a boat, they put him on a boat to get out of trouble because the people of Thessalonica followed him down to try to get him kicked out, and he goes to Athens. That, at the end of this chapter, my, uh, we, we talked about Paul's famous message sermon on Mars Hill. He preached there in Athens, Greece, right there in the shadow of the Acropolis, the Parthenon. I was thinking when I was studying for this, and I was thinking we need to take a trip with our church in the journeys of Paul, see some of these places. How many of you with me? That'd be fun, wouldn't it? And, uh, and uh, we're supposed to, Lord willing, we're, we're planning a trip to Israel in 2022. Um, but I'd like to someday follow through some of those journeys of Paul. But this is where we find ourselves in Acts 17. Paul here in Greece, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and he preaches that sermon on Mars Hill from, uh, on, on, 
on, on, uh, there in the shadow of the Parthenon, the Acropolis. And what we're going to do, I've already been three messages through Acts 17. We're actually going to go back to the beginning of Acts 17. And today is a part of really a two-part message where I want us to really consider how did Paul approach and teach and preach the Scriptures? And, and I, I do this, one, for us to have a better understanding of Scriptures, then also, in some ways, to hold me accountable, to make sure that I, as the pastor, do my very best. I won't be perfect at it, but I stay faithful to Scripture. And so today we're going to look at the way that Paul approached and preached Scripture. We're going to look at the power and priority of expository preaching. Now, when I use that word, there are different people that give you different definitions of what expository preaching means. Some people would say, well, that means you always have to be going verse by verse through a book. And, and you know, you can preach an expository message, and I'll explain that in a minute, that is not what I would call a systematic study of a book. We're right now in a systematic study of the book of Acts, but that, that's not the only way to preach expositionally. But I want us to see that. And then next week, I hope if you're able to, you'll be back we're going to look at the storyline of the Bible. The big picture of the Bible that Paul understood and used in his teaching and preaching. And it's something that I'll be honest, for much of my Christian journey, I didn't quite have a grasp of. And when you understand it, it changes the way that you read, that you study, that you understand, that you preach, that you live. And we're going to look at when we come to the Bible, and it's really the way that Jesus approached the, the Scriptures as well when He would teach and preach. We'll see some of that this morning. And so this morning, I want us to look, we're only going to look at three verses this morning in Acts 17. And that's kind of funny when I'm preaching a message on the priority and power of expository preaching. And we're going to look at three verses this morning. What does it mean to preach expositionally? Or what is expository? For some of you, that might be a word you're not real familiar with. And, and we could talk, there are books written on this, but simply really what it is, expository preaching, is to expose the text. To expound on the text. To explain what the text in its original intent actually meant. Sometimes Bible students and, and those that go to seminary and theologians, we like to use big words to make ourselves sound impressive. And, and we, we have words like the word hermeneutics, and all that means is how to study the Bible. But one of the first laws of my very fancy, impressive word there, hermeneutics, one of the first laws of hermeneutics, how to study the Bible, is understanding author and audience. Understanding the original author, and we understand God is the author of the Bible, but you know what I'm talking about, the human writer that was under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. What did that author intend to be saying to his audience? Because you see, here's the amazing thing about the Bible. The Bible is unbelievably relevant and applicable to Western uh, culture in 2021. It has all the answers that we need for the lives that we're living in America in 2021. But I'm going to let us in on a little secret. Spoiler alert, the Bible wasn't written in America in 2021. And there's a danger if we approach the Bible and read it through the eyes of that it was written in America in 2021, and we don't understand the sense and what it was written and the purpose of it. Why was it written? The truth of the matter is we can take the Bible out of context to make it say almost anything we want it to say. And unfortunately... Sometimes people even purporting to speak for in the name of God have done just that. False teachers have, have come up with false religions saying that they're using in false doctrines and error. And, and sometimes what we'll do is we'll use the Bible uh, to support our extra biblical ideas, something that's not necessarily against the Bible, but it's just not really in there. And we try to manipulate and twist and we've got to figure out, I can find one verse somewhere to kind of make that work in our extra biblical ideas. But sometimes it's not just extra biblical ideas, it's actually unbiblical truth and teaching and doctrine that will will use the Bible to try to support. That's why it's so important that we have a proper understanding and grasp and approach to Scripture. There's a danger in just picking and choosing verses and pieces of verses to preach. We, for example, I could take this statement out of Matthew 27 that says, Then Judas went and hanged himself. And when Judas betrayed Christ, he went and he hanged himself. He committed suicide. And then I could add to it Luke chapter number 10, verse 37. And the Bible says, go and do thou likewise. That's a pretty dangerous teaching. And not only is that not 
is it, would it be extra biblical? That's an unbiblical teaching. Now that's a ludicrous example. I don't know of anybody that's preaching in that, quite that, that kind of message. But the truth is, in some more subtle ways, if we don't have a proper understanding, we can, we can speak the Bible in some ways that it never intended to be spoken of. I had a pastor friend say to me, he said, we are not trying, as preachers, we are not trying to make the Bible say something. We are trying to say what it already says. I think that's a great, really bottom shelf definition of what I mean when I say expository preaching. As preachers, and you say, well, I'm not a preacher. Why are you preaching this to me? This should be in a Bible college class somewhere. We are all called to preach the gospel to share our faith, and our lives are preaching each and every day. Are we preaching? Are we living in accordance with the principles of Scripture? Are we understanding Scripture as it, and by the way, much of our society and culture is inundating with us with things that are not scriptural, that are against Scripture. We must understand what does the Bible actually teach. And, and so we're not trying to make the Bible say something. We are trying to say what it already says. That is the crux of expositional preaching. If, if a preacher or a Christian is trying to find a verse just to support their position or their belief or their political persuasion, we're doing it wrong. That's a backward approach to proper Bible study and Bible teaching. So how did Paul read, study, preach, and teach the Scripture? I want you to read our text, the three verses we're going to read as we look at the power and priority of expositional preaching, expository preaching. Acts 17, verses 2 through 4, would you read them aloud with me? Ready? Begin. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few." I'm not really going to get to it in my message, but I don't want to miss verse number four. There is great power in approaching and living and teaching and preaching the Bible this way. When we try to preach and teach and twist the Bible to our man-centered philosophies, there might be some short-term kind of effects, but there is long-lasting eternal power in preaching the Bible as it's intended and living the Bible as it's intended to be preached and lived. Do you see it in verse number four? Some believe, and it said of the devout Greeks, not a few. What it means is lives are being changed all over the place. Every city Paul went, and this, as his manner was, this is the way he approached Scripture. This is the way he preached. This is the way he shared his faith. And, and I'm going to give you a few thoughts on how he did. And, and some of it is, again, to challenge you, and some of it is to challenge me and to hold me accountable. I told Pastor Sammy, he asked what I preached, what I was preaching this morning. And I said, some of that's to hold me accountable because it is the day danger and maybe the tendency of every man that stands up to preach the Word of God uh, to, to begin to, to infiltrate his own ideas and philosophies and traditions and preferences. And where those line up with the Bible, great. But where they are not necessarily in the Bible, we need to be honest and say, this is my preference. This is my opinion. This is my tradition. This is, this is, my, this is the way I like it to be done. And there's nothing wrong with that. Every Christian and every church has preferences and traditions and, and, and ways— but what happens where the problem comes is when we conflate our opinions and our ideas and our preferences with the truths of Scripture. And there's a danger in the church today, and it's a ditch on both sides of the road. There is a great danger in Christianity, American and, and worldwide, to do one of two things, and both are very dangerous. One is that we, 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 we devalue doctrine to the level of preference. That is moral relativism. And we say, there is no absolute truth. You live your truth. Have we heard that in our society today? There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There's the truth. And Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way, the life. No man comes. Don't buy into the lie. Well, this is my truth. I, I'm not trying to be unkind. I don't care what your truth is, and I don't care what my truth is. I care what is the truth. And so there's a danger of devaluing doctrine, and churches have done this. Uh, we devalue doctrine to the level of preference. Well, that's just how they decide to do it. Well, we think it makes sense to do this. Well, we, we, we've always done it this way. That's a danger. That, that's, that's where you'll end up in, in theological liberalism. Doctrine coming to the level of preference. There is no black and white. The Bible is black and white in some things. By the way, the Bible has some gray areas in some of our applications of things as well. 
The other danger is we, we do the opposite. We don't devalue doctrine to the level of preference. We elevate preference to the level of doctrine. Well, this is my thing, and if you don't do it like that, then and we preach our preferences as doctrine. We don't want to fall into you. So one of the reasons I, I preach and teach, one is because it's in Scripture, another is to hold myself accountable. As your pastor, I don't want to devalue doctrine to the level of preference. But I also don't want to elevate preference to the level of doctrine. I want to preach doctrine where it's doctrine. I, Charles Keene, who's a, he's a, he was a pastor for many years. He's the one that started that Bearing Precious Seed Bible ministry. He's in his 80s now. He's such a neat guy and, and has, has invested in me in some neat ways, spent some hours with me. And, and he said, Brother Ryan, we sat in the embassy suites here in Irvine, and I just took page after page of notes for hours we sat there. And he said, Brother Ryan, I, I tried in my pastorate to always be loud where the Bible was loud and quiet where the Bible was quiet. What is he saying? I want to preach truth, what the Bible's actually teaching and preaching. So all of that to say, I, I want you to see that preaching this way, there's great power in it. Lives are being changed all over, uh, all over the known world in the decades following Christ's resurrection. How did Paul preach? How did he approach the scriptures? Number one, he preached Christocentrically. I told you we like big impressive words there, don't we? All that means is his preaching was Christ-centered. It was, by the way, he was ministering and preaching in a time when government was not real friendly to the church. Government was not real friendly to believers. But you know what Paul's main message was not harping against government. Paul's main message was, we preach Christ. He lifted Christ up. May Christ be magnified. Paul preached Christocentrically. Christ was the beginning, the middle, and the end of all his preaching. Charles Spurgeon, who ministered in the 1800s and is known, is given the nickname, the Prince of Preachers. He would often remind the thousands of those that would come weekly to the services at the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London he would often remind them of the need for them to live their lives in a Christ-centered manner. Christ was not, should not just be a part of our life. Christ, who is our life, Paul said. And our preaching should not just add Christ on somewhere. Oh no, we, we need to make Christ the focus of our church, of our theology, of our preaching. I want to give you uh, uh, four different quotes. And these message, many of these quotes sound like they would have come from the same message. They were preached in different messages, some of them years apart from one another. But what was Spurgeon telling his people? Every time we open up scripture, we should be looking for Christ. We should be preaching Christ. We should be finding Christ. What did he say his first his first statement he said the motto or that I'll share with you the motto of all true servants of God must be we preach Christ and him crucified a sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it no Christ in your sermon sir then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching Leave Christ out? Oh, my brethren, better leave the pulpit out altogether. If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last, certainly the last that any Christian ought to go to hear him preach. And may I just say, as we're talking about the way that Paul preached and approached Scripture, may I say I'm thankful that there are other podcasts or a, a television preacher or a, an online preacher that's a blessing to you. What I would say, are you moved to go to another church? What should you be looking for? Listen to the messages and listen Line them up with the filters we see here from Paul. And for me, one of the first and foremost is, is Christ the main, is, is he the main hero of this story? Is he the central theme of this message? And if he's not, we might have gotten off track a little bit. We preach Christ. Notice what Paul said in verse number, in verse number, uh, two, in verse number three, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And it says in verse 2, as his manner was, every, he went three Sabbath days. Every Saturday, every Sabbath day that he went to the synagogue, what was he preaching? Jesus. He went to Philippi. What did he preach? Jesus. He went to Thessalonica. What did he preach? Jesus. He went to Berea. Jesus. Galatia. Jesus. Colossae. He, wherever he went, what was as his manner was, he, he wasn't telling, and he would use his personal testimony, and he, he would use illustrations, and there's, we're going to hear from our missionary tonight that's going to share a lot of more, probably less of an expositional message and more of a testimony of 27 years of serving Christ in China. There's nothing wrong with illustrations, but the diet of our lives should be understanding and studying and reading and preaching Christ and him crucified. Amen. Leave Christ out of the preaching and you shall do nothing. Only advertise it all over London, Mr. Baker. 
he liked this analogy of the baker and bread, that you are making bread without flour. Put it in every paper, bread without flour, and you may soon shut up your shop for your customers will hurry off to other tradesmen. I just thought about this. Spurgeon wasn't the skinniest guy. That would make sense. Bread was one of his favorite things there. Just thought of that right now. My brain goes in weird ways. A sermon without Christ at its beginning, this is a great statement, at its beginning, middle, and end is a mistaken conception and a crime in execution. However grand the language, it will be merely much ado about nothing if Christ be not there. And I mean by Christ, not merely his example and the ethical precepts of his teaching, but his atoning blood, his wondrous satisfaction made for human sin and the grand doctrine of believe and live. And the last statement I'll share for right now, the spirit of God bears no witness to Christless sermons. Leave Jesus out of your preaching and the Holy Spirit will never come upon you. Think about this. Why should he? Has he not come on purpose that he may testify of Christ? Did not Jesus say, he, the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you? Yes, the subject was Christ and nothing but Christ, and such is the teaching which the Spirit of God will own. Be it ours never to wander from this central point. May we determine to know nothing among men but Christ and his cross. What was, G what was Paul's approach to Scripture that turned the world upside down? I want to preach Christ and him crucified. The central theme of every one of his messages was the good news of Jesus Christ. The death, the burial, the resurrection, Christ. By the way, it's not just Paul. Isn't that exactly how Jesus approached the scripture with the disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24? They were kind of confused. They didn't understand. They didn't quite, didn't quite understand the Bible, which at that point was just the Old Testament. They didn't understand it at all. And what does the Bible tell us in Luke 24? What did Jesus say? Then he said unto them, this is what he said to his disciples, O fools, and sl slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. When you're reading the New Testament and you see them talking about the prophets, almost always they're talking about the old books in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Lamentations, Malachi, those books in the Old Testament, what we call today minor and major prophets. He's talking about the, he said, you're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You don't understand scripture. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And notice what it says, and beginning at who, church? Beginning at what? What does it mean when it says beginning at Moses? That's the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Starting in Genesis beginning at Moses and all the prophets from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, what does it say? He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What did he do? He took the Old Testament and he said, and we get this weird, I'm going to talk about it next week a little more, so I'm not going to spend much time on it right now. We get this weird idea that the Old Testament and the New Testament are kind of diametrically opposed. These two really very distinct, different things that don't go together. That's not how Paul approached the, the Old Testament, and that's not how Jesus approached the Old Testament. From, the, from Moses, the beginning, Genesis, to the end, he expounded Christ all. He said, the Old Testament, the whole storyline of the Old Testament is a Messiah is coming. It's pointing to Christ. And, and the, the New Testament is pointing back. The Old Testament is pointing to a coming Savior. The New Testament is pointing back to a risen Savior. They go together. A couple of years ago, one of the more well-known pastors of our country, if I said his name, many of you would know it, or you, would, you might know his father, and, and I'm, not, I'm thankful for the good work. I believe there, that he's a good man uh, that has, I, I, I've actually, some of his materials have been helped to me. Pastor's one of the largest churches, but he took some heat a couple of years ago, I think justifiably so. He made a statement along the lines of, we need to unhitch our religion from the Old Testament. Basically, the idea of the Old Testament really just confuses people. We need to kind of put that away and just preach Jesus in the New Testament. The only problem with that is that's not the example we find in Scripture. They go together. Paul preached Christ. Jesus preached himself from there. One of my pastor friends told me, as we study and preach Scripture, we don't need to find Jesus in a passage. He's already there. Christian, we just need to preach Christ. Paul said it this way to the Christians at Corinth, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the Christians at Colossae, he said that in all things, he, Jesus, might have the preeminence, not the prominence. Not a main place, the first place. 
He doesn't just want a prominent place in your life. Jesus wants first place in your life. Well, I've got him in the top three. My career's up there and my relationship, my wife, my family, they're all up there. And Jesus is somewhere in my top three. He doesn't want to be in your top three that in all things, in our church, we talk about Jesus a lot, but we have kind of our things that we like to do. He doesn't want to be prominent in our church. He doesn't want to be prominent in your family. He doesn't want to be prominent in your life. He wants to and needs to and deserves to be preeminent. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He should be preeminent in our preaching, in our teaching, in our lives, in our conversations. One last powerful quote from Charles Spurgeon on Christ-centered preaching and living. Never was man blamed in heaven for preaching Christ too much. Nay, not even on earth to the sons of God was the cross ever too much spoken of. Outsiders may say this man harps only upon one string. Preach you Christ and Christ and Christ and Christ and nothing else but Christ. When you come to Liberty Baptist Church, it's my prayer that you know when we sing, we're going to be singing to magnify and lift up Christ. And when you hear preaching, it's my prayer that we're going to be preaching. And there are times where the application goes into family situations, and the application goes to this situation, and, and, you're, and how to study the Bible, and the application goes to how to be an, an, an outreach, a witness, an evangelistic, and there are different applications. But my prayer is that when you come, you don't have to wonder, boy, I wonder what hobby horse he's going to harp on today. I pray that my hobby horse is and will always be Christ and him crucified. You ever been there? You invite a friend or a neighbor or a coworker to church, and then you're stressed out. I wonder what the pastor's going to say, man. I hope he doesn't embarrass me. And I, I'm sure I have done that for folks. But my prayer is that you can invite a friend or a neighbor, a coworker, a stranger, and you know if they come, you're not worried. Are they just going to hear all of pastors, you know, all of the, the things that got him upset this week on the news? No, you're going to hear, hopefully they're going to hear Jesus Christ yeah. lifting him up. Christian Christ should be the hero of every story and every sermon, not us. He should be the center of our lives and our study. Number two, what did he do? Not only did he preach with, with a Christocentricity, not only did he preach Christocentrically, he preached boldly. He preached boldly. Look at verse three. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Understand who he's preaching to. They all were looking for Christ. Christ is a word that just means anointed one or Messiah. That's why the, the angel didn't say you'll call his name Christ. They said you'll call his name Emmanuel. You'll call him Jesus. His name was, they, what did, everyone called him Jesus. Now we call him Jesus Christ because we, we, we identify that he is and he was and is the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the world. So that word Christ, they were looking for Christ. They were looking for Messiah. And what Paul is preaching, he could have said, I'm with you, I'm looking for Messiah. No, he said, this Jesus, by the way, speaking to Jews, and if you go back and study, often when he would preach, he would say, that you crucified. That's pretty bold. You're the ones that put the Messiah to death. He said, this Jesus is Christ. He is the one. He didn't leave any, well, I think we're all trying to do our best to get there, and you believe in him, and you believe in that, and you believe in your good works, and we try to get there, and I just think that, that heaven's up here, and God is love, and there's all these ways, and the Muslim gets there this way, and the Buddhist gets there this way, and the Christian gets there this way, and the Catholic gets there this way, and that's not how Paul preached. He preached boldly. He said, there is one way, and his name is Jesus. And the Jesus that I tell you is Christ. And you say, well, Pastor Ryan, you say stuff like that every week. May I tell you, I have spent this many days in my life in jail for preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Paul, we showed you the map. He came from Philippi to Thessalonica. What had just happened in Philippi? The last place he was in, he preached Jesus. And do you remember the story of the conversion of the Philippian jailer that we talked about a couple of months ago? Remember that? Why did a Philippian jailer get saved? He got saved because he went to work one day. Why did he get saved at work? Because there was an inmate in his prison that was preaching Christ. Who was the inmate in his prison? His name was Paul. Why was he in jail? He was in jail for preaching Christ. And you know what Paul said? I don't care what it costs me. I don't care the consequences. And it's been pretty easy for me to be a Christian. I'll be honest, in the 30 plus years that I've been saved. But it wasn't that easy for Paul. And he preached boldly in Philippi and they threw him in jail. And he preached boldly in other places and they stoned him. And they threw him in jail and they, they beat him and they scourged him. And you know what he did? He got out of jail in Philippi. And you know what he did in Thessalonica? He preached Christ. He preached boldly. 
He, he, it, it didn't matter that he had endured beatings and imprisonment and stoning and persecution. He kept boldly preaching, yet we quiet down about the truths of Scripture at the first sign of opposition or negative reception in our culture. We live in a cancel culture, don't we? Somebody doesn't like what we say, say or do or did five or 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, they want to cancel it all. I want you to lose your job. I want you to lose your family. I want you to lose, I want you to lose everything. And we see it in, we see it in celebrities. We see it in politics. We, we live in that cancel culture. You say something I don't like, I want to cancel you. And may I just say, may I just say, if they can try to cancel Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss, I guarantee you that many in our society are coming for Christians and our biblical faith and beliefs. I remember being a young man and hearing my pastor preach. There's coming a day when to preach the truths of the Bible it will be considered hate speech. And we may have to go to jail to preach truth. And I'll be honest, I heard that 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And I thought, there's no way. That day's not coming. Not in my lifetime. Not in America. I don't know when that day is coming, but I can tell you, it seems much more likely than it did 20 or 30 years ago that I may have to take a stand in that way, that my children or grandchildren, it's not going to be as easy as it has been. We're going to have to learn how to stand and be willing to stand. It's going to cost us something for us and our children and grandchildren to be true Christians in the 21st century. Paul had just come from a prison cell in Philippi, and what did he do? He kept preaching Christ. What is derailing you or discouraging you from standing for truth? preach Christ no matter how politically incorrect he or his teachings become in our society. Paul didn't focus on the consequences. He focused on Christ. Number three, he preached intelligently. He preached intelligently. I want you to see the verbs in verses two and three. And Paul, as his manner was, went into them in three Sabbath days. You see that word? What's that next word? Three Sabbath days. What church? In verse two, he what? Reasoned with them of the scriptures. Verse three, what? Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. That idea, you study that in the Greek and the idea of reason, and it talks about what we would call, and he was in Greece, what we call the Socratic method of teaching, where it's discussion-based. You ask questions and you answer that. That's who he's reaching. He's reaching those in, in Greece where the Socratic method was started by Socrates. And what is he doing? Paul understood his Bible. He was a student of scripture. He knew why he believed what he believed. And you know what he did? He reasoned he, for three weeks. Three, ask any question you want, and I'll give you an answer. Here's what the, not what I think, not what I was taught. Here's what the Bible says. Here's Bible truth. Here, he preached intelligently. Let me say this. The Christian faith is not primarily an intellectual pursuit. It's a spiritual pursuit. The just shall live by faith. What is faith? Believing what we haven't seen. That's the opposite. What is science? What I can verify, the, the things I can see. So faith, our faith, the Christian life is not first and foremost an intellectual pursuit. It's a spiritual pursuit. It's a relationship with a person, not this set of facts that I know. Don't get, don't get me, don't, don't put words in my mouth that I'm not preaching. That is what it is primarily, but there is nothing praiseworthy about an anti-intellectual spirit. Well, I just heard one day that my grandpa used to tell me that, that I believe this. That's not what Paul did. He opened, he reasoned, he alleged, he gave all through scripture. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just say, because I said so. He took them all through scripture. What does the Bible say? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's why you and I need church multiple times a week. It's why we need to study the Bible. Why? So that we can be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. And doesn't mean that you have to make it an intellectual pursuit and I've got to convince them intellectually. No, the Holy Spirit's got to convict and it's a spiritual journey. But we do, it was, it was awesome this morning at the 8.30 service. Jay and Betsy Shaner, for the first time in a year, were in church this morning, sitting right back there where Randy and Angela are. And, and Jay was here. And many in our church, if you're new in the last year, you don't know them. They're some of the sweetest, most faithful, godly Christians in our church. Jay's, I'm guessing, right about 80 years old and, and battling several years through leukemia has not been able to come out with the COVID, his doctor and, and, and his immune system and all of that. His immune system is basically nothing at this point. And, uh, and, and they, they've, they've received the vaccine, so they felt comfortable coming this morning and, and they wanted to be in church and they were sitting by themselves, not around anyone else. But Jay's testimony is one 
I believe it was when he was in the military as a 20, 21, 22-year-old man. He had a roommate in the military that asked him and talked to him about Christ and tried to be a witness to him. And Jay, here's what Jay said. I've got too many questions you can't answer. Don't even try. This, this man said, I, I, do you know Christ? I want, he said, I've got too many questions. Jay's a thinker. Jay has a doctorate in Greek. He literally reads his Bible every morning from the Greek New Testament. Uh, he's, he's a scholar. He, that, and he said, I've got too many questions you can't answer. And you know what his friend did? He said, okay, we'll try. What's your first question? And Jay asked the question. And, and he didn't say, well, my pastor says, well, our church believes, well, I've always, here's what his friend did. Whatever question Jay asked, he went and found scripture. This is what Jay says. He turned the Bible around. And he put it over to him. He said, here's the answer. What, what, what's next? And it wasn't in a prideful way. What's next? And Jay said, well, what about? And he said, every question I had, he gave me Bible truth to answer it. And now some 50, 60 years later, we have a man that has served God faithfully for decades, has shared the word of God with thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, has, has devoted his life to study and to prayer and to teaching and all of that to scripture. Why? Because there was someone, there was a Christian that shared their faith intelligently. And, and again, I don't, sometimes when we do this, we get to the side of, I have to become like this scientist that can convince everyone in my own wisdom. Not what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit draws men, the Holy Spirit convicts, but we should be students of the Word of God so that we can give an answer to our faith, so that we can open people's eyes, not with our wisdom, but with the truths of God. Our, our preaching should not just be emotional tirades or rants about the things that bother us. Uh, our preaching should cause people to think about and see what the Bible truly means. It wasn't that the effect that Jesus' teaching and exposition of the Scripture had on his disciples on the Emmaus Road? the same chapter I showed you earlier where he expounded himself in all things in all the scriptures. What was the result? If we could put those verses up there from Luke 24, the result of Jesus expounding himself in scriptures in, later on in the same chapter, he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand Understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. What did he say? I shared these things systematically, starting from Moses, from, from the beginning to the end of the known scripture at that time. I shared these things with you. Why? That it might open your eyes to the truth. He opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. What am I saying? When studying and sharing scripture, don't check your brain at the door. And we as pastors shouldn't expect our hearers to either. Wasn't that what happened in the Berea, the next city Paul goes to from Thessalonica? The Bible says they were more noble. Why? Because they studied the scriptures to see whether these things be so. They searched them. We ought to be students of the word, growing in grace, growing in God's word, not in a prideful exercise of look how much I know. No, I want to know him more so I can live for him more. So I can be more like him. So I can share him more. It's not, it's not, this is not an educational pursuit. I'm going to get four doctorates so that people look at me and say, he's a theologian. No, God resists the proud. And I'm not against if you have a doctor. I respect that. There's, but so it's, not, it's not you need a doctor or you don't need a doctor. It's don't approach, don't approach that pursuit in a prideful manner, but don't go to the other side and say, well, I just don't need to know nothing. I just live by faith. There's a fine line, between, and I don't know, that's probably wrong. I did that in a Southern accent. Like some, for some reason, people from the South would say that. I don't know why I did that, but whatever. Cancel me, I guess. But <laughs> my, my mom and dad are both from the South, so I have family. I love them very dearly, but they were both raised in the South. But anyways, we'll keep moving along. I don't know why I did that. But, but there's nothing praiseworthy about blind faith. And then lastly, and I want to wrap it up. He preached with personal integrity. Simply put, his life matched his words, and that's one reason why the message was so powerful. My pastor, my, who is my father-in-law, used to say, I want the pulpit, my prayers at the pulpit matches the palace. What did he say? What was he? I hope that my preaching, what you see of me at church, is what my wife and children see of me at home. The things that I say, and none of us are perfect with this. There, there's no such thing as anybody who is perfectly consistent Christian. 
But what is he saying? I don't want to be an intentionally hypocritical where I, I preach the oracles of God at church and then at home I'm, I'm unkind and, and, and cruel to my wife and children. And that was not Paul. Paul lived what he preached. May I just challenge each of us, don't, live, don't just live so that people are impressed by our public persona. Live so that those who know us best are impacted by our private living. How do I know that Paul practiced what he preached? Well, let's look, and I'm going to wrap it up. Where was Paul preaching here? It's the, the, the city, the second biggest city there in Greece. It starts with the letter T. It's in verse 1, Acts 17. They came to, what, what city is he in, church? What church? It starts with a T. What city? Thessalonica. Does that sound like a book of the Bible you've heard of? Let's go there. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll be done right here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. How do I know he lived what he preached? He, after he leaves, he's only there for three weeks, and God uses him to plant a church and to reach many people with the gospel. I say three weeks, maybe a month. He was there, the Bible says, for three Sabbath days. How do I know that one reason his message and his preaching was so powerful is because his life matched what he said he believed? Look at how do I know this chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, what's happening, he's left Thessalonica, and he's in, I believe, in Corinth at this point, writing a letter back to these Christians that he was preaching to, that he reasoned and opened and alleged the scriptures to. Now notice what he says to them in the letter. Chapter 2, verse 2, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, I got put in jail, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. God knows we were doing this not of deceit. We were not preaching the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Our hearts were pure. Verse 5, for neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. We weren't trying to take advantage of you to get more for ourselves. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory. We weren't doing this for our name's sake. Neither of you. We weren't seeking your glory, nor yet of others. When we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Even as a nurse cherisheth her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail. We worked so hard for you. Laboring night and day, they would make tents at night so that they weren't taking any money so people couldn't say, they're just here to get your money. Because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. You, and here it is, verse 10, I want you to see it. You are witnesses and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. I didn't just preach it, I lived it. I didn't just tell you, let the gospel change your life. I showed you how the gospel had changed my life. That's powerful. Here's the question. Do your stated beliefs match your seen behaviors? What you say you believe, is it how you live? We say that we, we, we know the love of Christ and then we berate the person we disagree with on social media. That limits our testimony. That devalues our message. We say we've been transformed by the forgiveness of Jesus, but we can't forgive the one that hurt us. We say we understand that Christ in the church is a picture of how a husband and wife should treat one another, and then people see us mistreat and abuse, maybe just our children mentally or emotionally or physically or whatever, those closest to us. What did Paul say? I'm not just preaching this, I'm living it. May God help it to be so. By the way, Paul also said, I never do the stuff I want to do. I get frustrated myself. Oh, wretched man that I am. Don't, don't, don't beat yourself up too much. Paul was not perfect. He said, I struggle all the time. I want to do right. My flesh doesn't. I, I don't want to do these things, and I do them. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? Paul struggled just like you and I do. But what I'm talking about is that you know that double life, that intentional hypocrisy. Not you made a mistake, not you lost your, your cool here, not you, you got mad and honked at somebody and, and you're driving. That, we all go into the flesh, but is that a way of life for us? We, we come to church and everything looks good and, and we go home. And, and when that happens, when we do this, our message loses so much power. We lose influence with our neighbors. We lose respect with our children. We lose our testimony with our family. We, we lose opportunities to impact our coworkers. Let's not act like we are something that we're not. 
The story is told of a zoo that was noted for their great collection of different animals. And one day the gorilla died. The zookeeper, knowing that many people were going to come to see the gorilla until he could find a new one, had an idea. He said, I'm going to get a guy in a really authentic looking gorilla suit, and I'm going to pay him to go around and, and act like a gorilla. Well, this guy showed up for the first day of work, and, and I think it's a pretty true story, by the way. Showed up for the first day, I don't think it is, but showed up for the first day of work and, and didn't quite know how gorillas acted. He looked pretty awkward, didn't know what he was doing, and, and uh, his first day on the job didn't go so well. And as he tried to move convincingly, he got too close to the lion enclosure, tripped, and fell into the lion enclosure. He began to scream, yelling at the top of his lungs, obviously not a gorilla scream, convinced, somebody help me, convinced he was about to die until the lion spoke to him and said, be quiet or you're going to get us both fired. <laughs> what is that trying to be something they're not? Oh, how often do we do that, Christian? As Christians, may we not be on display for all those around us purporting to be something that we really are not. I want you to listen as I close to this description of this man and see if you can guess who, I, who I'm describing. He made free use of Christian vocabulary. He talked about the blessing of the Almighty and the Christian confessions which would become the pillars of the new government. He assumed the earnestness of a man weighed down by historic responsibility. He handed out pious stories to the press, especially to the church papers. He showed his tattered Bible and declared that he drew the strength for his great work from it as scores of pious people welcomed him as a man sent from God. Adolf Hitler was a master of outward religiosity with no inward reality. May that not be true of the people of God at Liberty Baptist Church. How should we approach Scripture? How should a pastor handle Scripture? We should preach Christocentrically. Christ is the central theme of our lives, of our families, of our homes, of our social media, of our preaching, of our programs. Christ, Christ, Christ. How should we live? How should we approach Scripture? How should we live it boldly? Oh, I don't think. God could do whatever He wants. I don't think it's going to get easier in the weeks, months, and years to come to live the truth of this book in the nation that we love? Are we going to be willing to live boldly the truths of Scripture? Paul did. This Jesus is Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. It's the power of God and the salvation. I'm not ashamed. You and I are going to have to decide. He preached boldly. He preached intelligently. It's not a scientific exercise, but there is nothing praiseworthy about not being a student of God's Word. And then he preached with personal integrity. He preached authentically. They knew who he, what he preached. He tried to live. Not perfectly, but it was real. It's been said, parents don't, I mean, children don't need perfect parents. They need real parents. Kids don't expect us to be real, but they can sense if we're phony. We've got to be real and humble ourselves. And by the way, the same is true of a pastor and of, of believers. The power and priority of expository preaching, and I would say this, expository biblical living living what the Bible teaches. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.